Welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast exploring Scottish history and culture through adventures and investigations. We delve deep into lochs, we hunt for lost treasure, and we metaphorically ransack museums to bring you both famous and infamous stories of Scotland. My name is Annie, and I'm an archivist and historian. I'm Jenny, a Scottish mountain goat. In this episode, we're taking another exploration into the secrets of Loch Ness. We'll start by examining the awe-inspiring natural history of the loch, and then we'll have a look at how science and technology have played a massive role in how people relate to Loch Ness and the myths of the monster. This is the second of two episodes themed on Loch Ness. In the first episode, we focus on the ancient Scottish peoples known as the Picts and think about whether their carvings of hybrid beasts could somehow be connected to the legend of the Loch Ness monster. In this episode, I'm going to look deep into Celtic mythology to think about how people made sense of the landscape before they had the science to unravel the riddles of the natural wonder that is Loch Ness. But first, let's kick off with the natural history of the area, because that is a story that shaped not only the land, but all of the people who have lived there since. Every community that has lived in the Scottish Highlands has had to adapt somehow to harness this jagged, rough land to be able to survive and thrive here. Jenny, who has a strange love of rocks and mountains, is going to explain the geology behind the formation of Loch Ness. So Jenny, how did the loch come to be such a monster size and part of such a dramatic landscape of hills and mountains? Yes, well it is massive. It's got more water in it than all the lakes in England and Wales and it's deeper than the North Sea. And the location of Loch Ness actually has a pretty significant part in the shaping of the world as we know it today. It lies upon the Great Glen Fault, which is an incredible slip-strike fault that cuts through northern Scotland. And the loch fills the area in between the fault This developed way before man or monsters, between 490 and 390 million years ago. This particular type of slip strike fault is called a transform fault, and without getting too technical, it's caused by two areas of land sliding past each other. Okay, so there was a massive amount of land moving about? Yes, the fault was formed at the end of the broader mountain-building geological era that we know as the Caledonian Orogeny. Wait, what's an orogeny? Ah, so an orogeny is the process of mountain formation. Um, We can tell from geologic events like earthquakes that the earth is constantly moving and changing. The Caledonian orogeny was literally an entire ocean closing. The whole ocean subducted under a tectonic plate and the land on either side of it slammed into each other. Now this huge force created a massive mountain chain and took over 150 million years to build the mountains that now line the east coast of America, like the Appalachians and those found in New Zealand, the ones in northern Scotland, and also ones over in Scandinavia. These mountains would have been as high as the Alps, but if you know them now, you'll know that they're nowhere near the size of the Alps the Himalayas now. And this is because over the last 400 million years, erosion caused by wind, water and ice has slowly but surely been wearing the mountains down, leaving only the hardened cores of the mountains that can now be seen from the shores of Loch Ness. So, the Caledonian Evogeny is the time period that developed the world-famous landscape around the area that would become Loch Ness. And the modern-day natural scenery around Loch Ness is truly astounding. It appears rugged, the loch overlooked by massive hills nearby and mountains further away. And in Gaelic mythology, I found some amazing folklore on how this landscape was formed. Ooh, yes, tell me more. In Celtic mythology, the mountains of Scotland were formed by a crone, an old woman hag deity named 
Calacvera, who travelled across Scotland carrying a wicker basket of stones, and as each stone dropped, it created a mountain. So that's a Celtic version of the Caledonian orogeny. Hmm, I think she probably just needed a better basket. Well, in some stories it's a basket, in other stories it's a creel. A uh, creel? Aye, a fishing creel. I just love the stories of the Calac, as they show the value of the older, wise women in Scottish mythology. And the Calac appears all over Celtic mythology in Scotland and Ireland. Sometimes she's a witch or transformed into a young, beautiful woman. Sometimes she's a hag or even a mother of all of the other gods. I really enjoy the stories of her because I feel they represent so many of the paradoxes of womanhood. There's a few different versions of the tale of the Calic Vera and the building of the mountains. In one story, she's building a path for herself to walk across Scotland, and she carries a giant hammer to make the path. But in all of the stories, she has this amazing strength and independence that just seems so fitting of the Highland landscapes. Mm. But now that we've both built our mountains, when does the loch actually come into formation? Ah, so we need to fast forward millions of years to get to the actual creation of Loch Ness. It was formed at the end of the Holocene, the last Great Ice Age, which was only about 10,000 years ago. And as I said earlier, the whole area where Loch Ness sits is a geologic fault, and this means that it's a natural path for erosion. So during the last Ice Age, a huge glacier ground down through the fault, eroding the Great Glen in the process. Now, this does create some problems for potential Loch Ness monster theories. Since Loch Ness itself was only made 10,000 years ago, that's way after the last dinosaurs walked the Earth. So if Nessie is some kind of prehistoric plesiosaur, then she would need to have been frozen in ice for upwards of 66 million years in order to end up in Loch Ness, which, if you've seen Captain America, isn't totally out of the question. (laughs) (laughs) So the theory of a prehistoric dinosaur crawling into a loch and somehow managing to avoid a mass extinction is off of the table then? I'm going to say that one's gone, yeah. In that case, I'll guess we'll have to rely on my mythology Mm. for tales of the Loch Ness Monster instead of your science. (laughs) So, the monster isn't the only mystery of Loch Ness. There's a small island called Cherry Island on the loch that doesn't fit in with the surrounding geology. It turns out that the island is actually a Cranach, and Cranachs are tiny man-made islands constructed thousands of years ago. There are Cranachs throughout lochs in Ireland and Scotland, the oldest of them being about 5,000 years old. That's older than the pyramids. Now, we don't know exactly what the Cranachs were used for, but the main theory is that people would build houses on them and live on the lochs for protection. There they'd be safe from the dangers of wolves, which were infamously vicious in Scotland, but also threats from other people. Neolithic Scotland was a dangerous world to live in. Making a house on a loch gives you an excellent defence. It's like having your very own protective moat and guard monster. (laughs) But the Cranach must have also been a massive symbol of strength and power because you need a decent-sized group of people to be able to construct an artificial island. That's a lot of physical work. And I think that we need to consider the amazing technology required to plan and build an artificial island with just Neolithic and Bronze Age tools. Nowadays, we often think of technology as having to include some kind of mechanical system, but there would have been great innovation in the development of Cranachs. It takes the mind of an architectural engineer to conceive of a Cranach. And one of the most beautiful parts of the design of the Cranachs is out of necessity. They were built out of what could be found in the local vicinity. 
So there's a natural variation in Cranigs depending on the local woods and resources available. The Cranig is built through a combination of an architectural mindset and an understanding of nature. And they're still there today, so they must have been built incredibly well, right? Aye, so they're essentially big wooden frames that need to support a platform that carries the weight of a whole house. I think that many Cranigs that you can see nowadays, though, are held together because they've been reclaimed by nature. Plants, trees and flora grow up on the Cranigs and their roots have stabilised the basis, which means the Cranigs have lasted thousands of years. Wow. Unfortunately, none of the structures have lasted that long. There's no original ones left on any Cranigs. However, many of them have buildings on them that have been added over the past millennia. Cherry Island on Loch Ness had a castle on it over 500 years ago. But no remains can be seen of the castle from the shore. So, from Loch-dwelling people, let's return to Loch-dwelling monsters. Yeah! As we covered in the last episode, sightings of a mysterious beast in the loch have been reported for over... 1500 years and the loch has been a great location for technology and innovation a prime example of this being the splendid caledonian canal completed in 1822 which can transport boats from inverness to fort william however it's in the 1930s that we see a sudden boom in sightings of the loch ness monster why is that so the 1930s is an incredible time for advancements in both transport and technology, but we have to remember it's also a tough time for everyday people. So Scotland is still recovering from the aftermath of the First World War and is in the midst of an economic depression. Nowadays, we think of the 1930s as the interwar period, but people at this time would have been hoping with every ounce of their being for peace after the devastation caused by the First World War. And I think in difficult times, it's actually quite useful to think about legends and monsters, primarily because deep down we know that the monsters aren't real, but also because in so many stories that pits humans against monsters, it's humanity that overcomes against all odds. Okay, so we have a country that because it's recovering from the trauma of the First World War has a very open mind towards good news. And I guess the Loch Ness Monster is brilliant for this because it's whimsical but also connected to an ancient past. People of all ages could laugh or speculate about the monsters, children could play monster games and adults could and still do open B&Bs for tourists. Yes, and another key shift in the 1930s is tourism and outdoor hobbies. Beginning of the 1930s, there's about one million private motor cars on British roads. And by the end of this decade, it's doubled to more than two million. By 1938, approximately 20% of families would have had access to a car. And with this, many roads across the UK were being improved to make travel smoother. During the 20s and 30s, great improvements were being made to the A82, the road which runs alongside Loch Ness. And suddenly, there are more people journeying to this area. And all of this comes together to make the perfect backdrop for the Loch Ness Monster to re-emerge. Oh, and boy, does she come out in style. Interest in Nessie peaked after 1933 due to a newspaper story of a sighting of the monster by George Spicer. His life was spiced up by an encounter with a 30-foot prehistoric monster carrying either a deer or a sheep on its back. And I don't mean to be pedantic, but if the man can't tell the difference between a deer and a sheep, I'm not sure we should take his sighting too seriously. 
However, the newspapers saw this as an excellent story and ran with it. For example, the newspaper The Scotsman had zero mentions of the Loch Ness Monster before 1932, but 192 mentions in 1934. They had their own Nessie correspondent. (laughs) They did not. Yeah, they didn't, that's a lie. (laughs) By December 1933, there had been 60 reported sightings, so many that the British Parliament asked the Secretary for Scotland to investigate the Loch Ness Monster. In the interest of science and in order to prevent cruel men from carrying out unfriendly actions which may injure it. He, uh, he refused. He was clearly a cruel man. Not as cruel as that accent, Jenny. It was pretty bad. But I was also surprised by the amount of official interest in the monster. In 1934, there was even considerations by the Ness District Fishery Board as to whether they should examine the possibilities of a monster in Loch Ness. They concluded, quite pragmatically, that it was the fishery board's duty to protect the salmon, but they had no evidence that the monster was interfering with the salmon, so they must leave it alone. Clearly, Nessie does not eat salmon. Oh, so she wasn't a fan of fish. Well, in contrast to that, in 1934, a gynecologist from London took a photograph that shocked the world. (laughs) Then he went to Loch Ness. I'm just kidding. No, it really did take the first photographic evidence of the Loch Ness Monster. The picture was printed in the highly reputable scientific journal called the Daily Mail. Oh dear, I do wish the Daily Mail would refocus toward mythological monsters. Well, this is the most famous picture of the monster. In it, you see the long slender neck of Nessie rising from the waters, and it blew up. This photo spread all over the world and had everyone talking about a prehistoric monster lurking in a loch in Scotland. The photo of the monster really catapulted the myth into the modern day. It made Nessie a household name and turned the myth into reality. And sightings continued to flourish. In 1949, George Cameron, a warden of a local youth hostel near Loch Ness, spotted a monster which he described as having three ten-foot-long humps. Ooh, my lovely monster humps. Check them out. (laughs) I wonder if maybe this monster was a bit of light marketing for his youth hostel. Hey, Fergie is not light marketing. She was in a Pepsi advert. (laughs) (laughs) and then going beyond scotland there have also been sightings of nessie in the atlantic ocean german submarine commander during the first world war named forstner wrote in a berlin newspaper that he saw a monster similar to the loch ness monster in the atlantic ocean just south of ireland the sighting occurred on 30th of july 1915 as him and his crew watched the sinking of the British cargo ship, SS Iberian. When the Iberian exploded, a 60-foot monster that looked like a crocodile with webbed feet jumped out of the water. The incident was recorded in the submarine's logbook, which means it really should be true. Oh, there's also some great international examples of Nessie's cousins popping up all over the globe. My favourite one is the Cadabrosaurus, which lives in Cadaborough Bay in Canada. Interestingly, there are First Nation accounts of this grand sea serpent and they paint its image on their canoes to keep it away, which is a bit bizarre because if I saw my face in a boat, the first thing I would do would be go and take a selfie with it, but each to their own, I suppose. You're so vain, you probably think this canoe is about you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, paddling swiftly on... (laughs) And throughout time, we do see parallels between cultures who have strong connections to water, developing their own folklore around the monsters in the depths. 
I have this weird story about Loch Ness. I was hiking along it doing the Great Glen Way and I ran into this guy who was standing by the shores alone and we just got chatting. It turns out he was from Togo, which is a small country in Africa on the coast. And I, I was like, why are you just standing here alone? And he was like, well, my cousin is out on the boat um, see, you know, trying to see Nessie. And I was like, why didn't you go? And he says it's because he's scared of the water because of the monsters that are in it. Now, he didn't mean Loch Ness. He meant all the monsters in all the water because as a child, his parents had told him never to go in the water because the monsters will drag you down. Now, obviously, that's just a way of using a child's imagination to keep them out of the dangerous waters with like currents and, and riptides and stuff. But to him, this had kind of stayed with him through life. And it's just really interesting that he now was at Loch Ness and actively not going in the boat because of the water and him being scared of it. So it's just really interesting seeing how the things we tell our children these mythical and dangerous monsters they actually serve to keep us alive and safe and to survive into adulthood where we then use them to perpetuate the survival of our families through time it's really interesting that monsters are used to repel people but actually we see nessie being a major tourist draw and yeah and now people come from all over the world to see nessie We're going to finish on quite a heartbreaking story, that of sportsman John Rhodes Cobb, who died tragically on Loch Ness in an amazing attempt to do something that nobody had ever done before. Born in 1899, he's described as a friendly, six-foot-tall, charismatic fur broker. Ooh, six-foot-tall and charismatic, what's his number? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, he made his money in fur and spent it on fast cars. He was always fascinated by speed, and in the 1920s, he made a couple of court appearances for dangerous driving. My favourite one is in 1924, he was caught swerving all over the road and almost hit a cyclist. And when the police stopped him, he retorted, I'm sorry, officer, I was just showing my friend how I could drive on the greasy road by putting the brakes on and making the car swerve. (laughs) (laughs) The magistrate asked if he was joking, and in his defence argued that it was a perfectly justifiable experiment. Unsurprisingly, he lost in this defence and was fined 20 shillings, which was only about £40 in today's money. However, this didn't stop him, and his love affair with machines, motors and speed led him to devote his life to going faster and faster. He achieved the land speed record in 1939 by going over 400 miles per hour on the Utah Flats. Through this, he achieved fame and earned the nickname Speed King. When Britain went to war, he responded to his country's call and served as a pilot in the Royal Air Force and then in the Air Transport Auxiliary, being demobilised at the end of the war with the rank of Group Captain. And at the end of the Second World War, he returned to his love of racing, a dream that would eventually lead to his demise. On 29th September 1952, John Cobb attempted to break the world water speed record right here on Loch Ness. He had a jet-powered boat specifically built for the attempt, which he called the Crusader. The Crusader is absolutely amazing to look at. It's strikingly streamlined. It looks more like a rocket ship than a speedboat, as though any minute it could blast up to the stars. This was a huge event. Even the Queen Mother visited to see how incredible this new technology was. John Cobb's friends, family and wife watched from the shore of Loch Ness. He did a few test runs, and when he decided the conditions were just right for his attempt, he rounded the end of the loch and put the Crusader into full power. 
The crowds and film crews watched as he flew by, getting up to a huge 206 miles per hour, the fastest water speed that has ever been accomplished. The Crusader, at full speed, was flying across the loch when suddenly it hit an unexpected wake in the water. The boat was thrown into the air and disintegrated into a shower of spray and smoke, killing John Cobb immediately. A bystander described the crumpled fragments of the Crusader floating on the water like autumn leaves. Despite travelling faster than any human ever had on water, his speed was not recognised as a water speed record, for Cobb never finished his last run. Oh, man. However, he was posthumously awarded the Queen's Commendation for Brave Conduct, for services in research into high speed on water, and the people of nearby Glenurgut put up a plaque in his honour. I've always found that natural places such as Loch Ness are great places to think about history, be it deep time or within living memory. However, I also think that Loch Ness is a wonderful place to think about the future, because Loch Ness is a landscape made by both science and myth. It's impossible to stand beside the loch and not find inspiration for something greater, be it inspiration from the incredible natural world or from the stories of how a Neolithic community can come together to make a small island. It is amazing. What always blows me away is I spent a lot of time in America and when people found out I was from Scotland, the first thing they said was Loch Ness or Loch Ness Monster and would ask if it was real or if I actually believed in it. Loch Ness, for some reason, has held people's imaginations captive for centuries and it's only getting stronger. The monster has evolved from a symbol tied to religion and cultural change, and it's grown into the beast we know and love today. Nessie is a symbol of Scotland. She represents our wild and rich history, and also our fun and imaginative culture, (laughs) and she carries that with her all over the world. People visit Loch Ness from around the globe to immerse themselves in the myth, and in doing so, keep Nessie alive. And that's us, come to the end of our journey on Loch Ness for now. But I hope we do revisit soon in the future, especially to go into details of the Caledonian Canal, which is an exquisite example of engineering, and also Urquhart Castle, which is completely drenched in stories for us to explore. However, our next episode takes us to the Kausi Caves on the Murray Coast, where we have stories of a Bronze Age mortuary and some incredible writing on the walls. Please do join us for adventures, stories and misdemeanours. It's a really magical episode. You can find more information on Loch Ness on our website, storiesofscotland.com. We also give a massive thank to Ewan McCreeth for writing and recording the theme music throughout this episode. We love our jingle. I've been Jenny. And I've been Annie. Thank you so much for listening to Stories of Scotland. Oh, duh. Oh, duh.